We're in Philippians chapter 2, 1 and 2 this morning. We covered about two weeks ago, the first seven verses together, uh, when we talked about unity within the church, unity within the body of Christ. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go back over those seven verses uh, a little bit slower and uh, kind of applying each one within a different context from the Church Unity Sermon. It'll be uh, kind of focusing on the content of each of the verses. And so this morning, verses 1 and 2 is our focus this morning. When Paul talks about consolations from Christ, what he means there is comforts from Christ. You realize that Christ comforts his people, right? Christ is a comfort to his people. Um, I... This world is, is, there's so much turmoil, trouble. I mean, suicide rates today are higher than they've ever been. People cannot find peace. They cannot find comfort. But to the Christian, Christ is comfort. He provides comfort, consolation from suffering. He is a God who comes alongside of us, helps us. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailties. He knows we're but men. And he pities us. He's not, as I've said so often, a far off, distant God. A God who has no concern for his people. He's drawn near to us. We saw at the end of chapter 1 the suffering of the Philippian Christians. Look back there, chapter 1, verse 28. Paul, in the writing of this church, says in verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. Don't be intimidated by your enemies. This is You say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. No, 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 no. Paul's writing from prison. Right? It's easy for us to say, but Paul's in prison, and not a prison like you and I would go to. Like, we talk about it all fancy, don't we? We're like, Paul was in prison for his faith in Christ, and one day in America, we will be too. Yes, but I don't care how bad things get in our society, the American prison is so much more comfortable than what Paul had to endure in his day. We will never suffer what Paul had to suffer. And from that dungeon, from the dampness and the coldness and the rats and the infestations and being chained to a wall, Paul writes things like, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Right? Paul is our example of joy. Why was Paul joyful? Again, I said it a couple weeks ago. He wasn't an incurable optimist. He was consoled by Christ. Christ was a comfort to Paul. Do you know why so many professing Christians today suffer so much? Because Christ isn't a comfort to them. Because they don't really know him. Right? That's the problem. C.H. Spurgeon, if you know much about his life, he suffered terrible depression. Terrible depression. If he had not been a Christian, I promise you, he would have committed suicide. Terrible depression. He had to leave his church for months at a time. And just write them letters. He had to go and get away into a, into a, out of the hustle and bustle of, of London and get to a, a nice ocean scene where he could just relax. And Terrible depression. And yet when you read those letters that Spurgeon wrote to his church, they're full of joy and hope because Christ was a comfort to him. 
And there's people today, I'm sorry to say, who call themselves Christians who find no comfort in Christ. Christ is a consolation for his people. If we're not finding comfort in Christ, maybe we don't know Christ. He's not a comfort to some of his people. So we see that they are undergoing this, this same persecution that Paul's undergoing. He says, don't be terrified by your adversaries. Don't worry. It's okay. We got a tiny bit of persecution yesterday. I was a little perturbed. Not at the guy that was persecuting, but at the Christians who were so upset by it. He had a, he had a leaf blower. People were getting worked up and getting angry. And I'm standing there like, what is everyone's problem? Let's sing. He's got a leaf blower. They used to burn us at the stake. I think we're doing pretty good. One of our guys got pushed. He pushed back. And I thought to myself, why would you do that? Christ, when he reviled, reviled not in return. Don't do that, Christian. When you're pushed over because you're preaching the gospel, don't get up and push him back. Don't do it. Defend yourself. If he's trying to kill you, definitely. But come on. Come on. We're not out here for vengeance. Suffer well, Christian. When suffering does come, suffer well. Paul was beaten. He didn't, he didn't beat the guys back. He did, he did you know, use his rights and say, should you be beating me? I'm Roman, uncondemned. So use your rights. But don't be, don't be, don't be upset because you have adversaries. That's to be expected. And far more Christians today have far worse adversaries than you and I have. I mean, some people were really upset yesterday. I'm thinking to myself, he had a leaf blower. Some Christians face knives and swords and fire today. It's all right. We're not doing too bad. These people were facing severe persecution. And Paul says, don't worry about it. You know why? Because he knew Christ would console them. Christ would comfort them. He'd already, he had already experienced the comfort of Christ. He's in a prison cell telling people, don't worry about it. They're not even as bad as he is right now. Remember, he's in a prison cell. Remember our series to Philippians 1? He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He hasn't heard back yet. He could, he, could, he could face death. He could be executed. He doesn't know. At the same time, he's like, don't worry about it. Don't be terrified. Don't be, don't be concerned. You know what that term terrified means there? If you go back in the Greek, you know what it means? Don't give a hoot. That's what it means. Who cares? That's what it means. That's what Paul's saying. You got adversaries. Who cares? Don't worry about it. Amen. Don't worry about it. They may put you in prison like me. Don't, don't worry about it. You may have to face death. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. Paul's like, I don't know how it's going to go with me yet. Maybe I'll go home and be with Christ. It's far better. Maybe I'll stay here and bear fruit for Christ. I don't know. Remember, Paul has the attitude about death towards, not that he wants to die or doesn't want to die. He's like, yeah, whatever God wants. I'm okay with it. Verse 30. Right? No, verse 29. I'm sorry. For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only just to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We need to do a whole sermon series in that one verse. Paul reminds them that suffering is a gift, not different from the gift of eternal life. Because he makes that comparison, doesn't he? It's been given. That, I mean, that, 
That needs to be preached more in the American church. In every church. It's being given to you. Not only to believe. Now that was given to you, right? That's a gift. And just like that gift, Christ is giving you the gift of suffering. Take it, receive it. He's not saying one's a good gift or one's a bad gift. He's saying the gift of suffering is like the gift of salvation. They're both good gifts. It's been given to you in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe. We all want the believing part. He says it's been given to you to suffer for his name. Suffer for his sake. What a gift. Do you ever suffer for Christ and be like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I remember reading George Mueller was out witnessing one time open air preaching in a Jewish area of London. And he was pelted with rotten fruit and stones. He wrote his diary, came home tonight rejoicing that I was counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. Counted worthy. And we'd be like all over social media, wouldn't we? Like, they threw rotten fruit at me, praying precatory prayers. <laughs> Mueller's like, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I was reading one mission. I don't know who it was now. I don't remember the name. One missionary said, wrote home and said, uh, you don't get the privilege of suffering as we do for Christ. I pray for you guys. They're writing home to America. Pray for you guys every day. You don't get the privilege of knowing Christ like I get to know Christ. I pray suffering comes to America. This is in the 1800s. I pray suffering comes to America, mom and dad, because you guys. He writes, not because I don't like you guys. I love you guys. But I want you to know more of Christ as I have come to know more of Christ. Suffering's not bad. Verse 30. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So they were suffering persecution in a similar way to Paul's persecution. Then we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. You guys know my standard operating procedures. When you see therefore or wherefore, it refers back to what was said before. So therefore, because of your persecution and suffering, because the same conflict that was in me is now in you, because it's been given to you on behalf of Christ to believe and to suffer for him, because of those things, there's consolation in Christ. There's consolation in Christ. They could endure suffering because Christ had given them comfort. And this is our focus this morning. One thing we want when going through a difficult time is compassion, right? Don't we? That's not a bad thing, brother. I'm not, I'm not saying that. So I don't want everyone to go, oh, yeah, that's terrible. No, I'm a, we want someone to come alongside, put an arm around us, say things are going to be okay. Maybe to cry with us for a little while. To console us. We, we want that. There's something within the human spirit that, that needs that, that compassion, that reaching out. Christ understands that, church. And when you have no one, Christ comes alongside us. And he comforts. And he see, Paul had no one to sit down in the prison with him and put their arms around Paul and say, Paul, it's going to be okay. But he had Christ. Christ consoled him. And Christ is telling this church, you're going to suffer. You are suffering. The same as I suffered. What you saw in me, Christ has given to you. And now I'm telling you, 
there's comfort. There's comfort. Um, I ordered a book. I got it the other day called Father Tinboom. He's not a priest. He's Corey Tinboom's father. She wrote a little book about him, about her grandpa- grandfather, and her man, her, 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 her man, her father. <laughs> I'm tired. Her father was a kind of man, as I was trying to say, who took great consolation in Christ. Her nephew, Peter, was at the jail uh, after Corey was taken away. So in her book, we see him, her leave, and then she leaves her father behind. And she said goodbye to her father. All he had to say to her was, God's spirit be with you, my child. And Peter said that they stood for hours facing a wall. And then they're finally allowed to stop facing the wall. And Father Tenboom went and sat in a corner and began to read his Bible. And people gathered around him because he was known around town for his Christianity. And he began to read to them. He that dwelt in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And Peter said, I couldn't imagine how that was a comfort to people. We are Impri- that, that, that passage, he was arguing within himself, that passage says that, you know, a, a thousand will fall at your right hand and 10,000 over here, it will not come near you, but it has come near us. We're in prison. And yet he says, I looked at his face. His grandfather was a perfect peace. And he said, I knew one thing. My grandfather was dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Christ had brought him consolation and comfort for what would be his last moments because Father Tenboom died within a few days of the arrest of everybody. He died on the floor of that gymnasium where he'd been reading the Bible. He died in peace, with peace on his face because he knew the consolations of Christ. You understand that, church? Christ comforts his people. Whatever you're going through, if you're in Christ, he comforts his people. Don't turn to the world for comfort. Don't turn to your television for comfort. Don't turn to popular culture for comfort. They can't find comfort themselves. All these celebrities killing themselves, overdosing, turning to drugs. There's no peace out there. But Christ offers comfort consolation to people to the point that when you're sitting in a Nazi jail facing death an 82 year old man can say he that abides in the shadow of the almighty or the shadow of the most high shall abide in the shadow of the almighty that's comfort that's peace turn to Luke 2 25 consolation is one of the titles of Christ as Messiah Luke 2.25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. 
Now, was Jesus the consolation to all Jews? <laughs> no. No, no, he angered most, most of them. Remember when the, uh, the wise men came through town and they said, oh, we've seen the star, the Messiah is born. And Herod inquires of the, the Pharisees where Christ should be born. And they tell him the prophecy. And the wise men, they slip out and they go to find him. Do you know something missing in that story that gets overlooked a lot? The Pharisees didn't follow them. They heard the Messiah is here, the prophecy is fulfilled, they knew the prophecy, and they didn't follow them. They went back to their lives. They found no consolation in Christ. They were stirred up by Christ. They were angered by Christ. We have to put this man to death. Everyone's following after him. But see, we know that Israel, according to the flesh, is not true Israel. There's a spiritual Israel that many Jews did not and do not belong to. Christ was a consolation to them, wasn't he? Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was a consolation to him. Or the woman said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. He was a consolation to her. Or the Roman soldier who said, I have someone sick and dying, but you can just speak the word and you can heal them. He was a consolation to him. When Stephen said, Stephen, Thomas said, unless I see his hands, the nails, and put my hand into his side, I'll not, I'll not believe. And then Jesus, remember Jesus came and yelled at him and rebuked him and cast him out? No, he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? Here's my hands. Here's my side. Don't be faithless, believe. He was a consolation to Thomas in his unbelief, wasn't he? Yeah. Christ is a consolation to his people. Yes, amen. Listen, no suffering that you or I will ever endure will ever equal the suffering that Christ endured for us. Amen. There's great consolation there. You will never be rejected like Christ was rejected. Amen. You will never be hated like Christ was hated. Amen. You will never be betrayed as deeply as Christ was betrayed. He's a consolation for his people. You ever heard that? You remember that old song, anything you can do, I can do better? That's Jesus' song for his people. Anything you can suffer, I suffered better. I'm your consolation. He's our reward. Every believer should know the consolation of Christ. If you're given to fear and anxiety... And you're going through a hard time. You cannot find comfort in Christ. I encourage you to question your salvation. How are you in Christ and he brings you no comfort? How? Christ is the comfort of his people. I'm not saying people who commit suicide aren't saved, but I question anybody who claimed Christ and claims, I just, I have to get out of this world. You found no consolation in the one who suffered for you? I don't know. I struggle with that. Christ consoles his people. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 1, 5.
I saw it when I passed it, didn't I? You ever have one of those moments in your brain where you look at something and go, that's what I need, and then you go right past it? Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Remember, the word consolation means comfort. Paul says, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, that is, we're suffering for Christ's sake, on Christ's behalf, so our comfort, our consolation, also aboundeth, did you get those last two words? By Christ. Christ himself is our comfort. People pray, I've heard people pray before, during a time of loss, maybe loss of a loved one. God sent angels to comfort them. We stop asking for stuff like that. If they're saved, Christ is their comfort. He doesn't need to send an angel to do it. Christ comfort them. Well, angels can't minister to Christ because he was Christ. But Christ is enough for his people. Paul says we are suffering. And the suffering in us abounds. It means it's great. Lots of suffering. And he says, by the way, church, the comfort that we get from Christ, it also abounds. It's great comfort. It matches the suffering. There's not more suffering than there is comfort. The comfort equals the suffering. They both abound. There's plenty. In other words, Christ is not going to make us suffer in this life, but that he comes alongside and comforts us. What a great truth for the Christian going through hard times. What a great truth. That consolation comes by Christ. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Kind of following the word consolation through the New Testament here. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. Not only do we have consolation, we have everlasting Consolation. Did you get that? Everlasting consolation by Jesus and the Father. You could say that Christ is our everlasting consolation. What's the consolation we have? We, what do you give to a dying loved one when they're saved? You're going to go be with Christ. Right? We're with Christ. That's a comfort. Nobody, no, no Christian on the deathbed goes, oh, man. That's a great comfort. In just a few moments, you will leave here and behold the face of Christ. And there's comfort in that. For those who are not on our deathbeds, to live is Christ. It's to know Christ, to talk to Christ, to hear from Christ. Do you understand that? There's a great comfort there's a great comfort in hearing from Christ. 
Christ is our comfort. He doesn't... See, how does he comfort us, Pastor? He comes to us. All of Christ is enough comfort for me. You understand that? All, we have all of Christ. You have Christ's undivided attention when you're praying. And because he's an omniscient God, so do I and so do you and so do you. He's not splitting his attention between us. He comes to each and every one of us. You understand? He knows our name, right? Like nobody knows your name. Probably nobody famous knows your name. In your lifetime, no president has known your name. The King of England does not know your name. The Prince of Wales does not know your name. The King of, who else has kings? Thailand? Jordan? Kings don't know your name, my name. But the God of the throne of heaven knows your name. And he called you by name. And then he comforts you. He comes alongside. Listen, just knowing Christ knows my name is comfort enough for me. But then he comes alongside. He gives me himself as comfort. Christ is our everlasting possession and we are his. There's comfort in that. This is why I say if all we have is Christ, we have enough, don't we? If there's no... uh, eternal rewards, if there's no heavenly home, if all we get is Christ himself. Somebody asked me a question on social media the other day about the intermediate state. and They're, they're just pondering, you know, do we have temporary bodies? Do we interact with other Christians of the past? Or are we just like pure consciousness beholding the face of Christ? I thought it was a pretty good question. I don't have the answer to it. Don't don't ask you on Friday night, please. I don't (laughs) have that answer. But some people had chimed in that, well, if we didn't have bodies and didn't interact with other people, that'd be kind of boring. And I thought to myself, even if we're just pure consciousness beholding the face of Christ, what a glory that is. Do you realize how beautiful he is? Do you realize who he is? His magnificence, his holiness. If that's all we do, if all we get when we go to heaven is we die and we behold Christ, it's still far better than here. Christ is our beloved. He is beautiful and worthy. I see so much nominal Christianity. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I hope you don't take it that way. My, I think my wife gets nervous when I talk this way, but I even look around our own church, and sometimes I'll see people who can just take it or leave it. A church, I mean. Fellowship. And I worry. How does Christ not draw you into wanting to be part of the fellowship of the body of Christ? How can we go on being nominal? How can we not read our Bibles? How can we not give ourselves to prayer? How can we not give of ourselves to Christ fully? How can we hold back anything when Christ has given himself to us? I get concerned. Christ is worthy of our full devotion. A pastor shouldn't have to continually follow up to you to bring you to church. I'm not accusing anybody. I'm just saying as a general statement. We shouldn't need bright lights a rock band, a fog machine. We shouldn't need games, prizes, bounce houses. 
to bring people to church. That's right. Amen. Christ is enough. Amen. And if they're not coming for Christ, they're not coming to Christ. Amen. I mentioned at BBS on Wednesday night. I think was it Jason on our shoulder? Somebody I showed the video. Everybody dancing in the fog machine, the flashing red and blue lights. And he's like, "What am I looking at? This is a rock concert? No, this is church vacation Bible school. That's what they're doing: dancing, flashing lights, filling the room with smoke, and telling all the kids, "Repeat after me: You'll go to heaven when you die." That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand we live in a secular society. Some people have to work. They miss services. I understand all that. I'm not angry at anybody. But if your work means you can never go to church, you need new work. Let's be honest. Some can only be here Sunday nights. Some can only be here Wednesday nights. Some Sunday morning. Hey, I'm thankful. I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but glad to see Brother Michael here today. He works. You know that. He can't be here every week. But he knows, I'm going to say this out loud because he knows with my heart, if he's in town, he needs to be here. Faithfully worshiping Christ. And he can't always be, and I understand. That's okay. Jobs are necessary evils of this world. So he's saying, oh, pastor, I work. I, are you accusing me? And I'm not. But with the time that you have that's free, do you worship Christ? If not, there's a problem. There's a problem. I'm talking about people who can go to church and choose not to go. By the way, watching on live stream is not going to church. You watched people go to church. You didn't go to church. The church is the physical gathering of God's people together to corporately sing and pray and hear the word of God preached. That's church. You don't have church on your couch unless you absolutely have to do that. If you can't, but even that, even a shut-in. Let's not pretend a shut-in goes to church. Some people can't go to church because they can't physically be there. And they're watching church doesn't make that church. So let's not confuse terms. COVID was terrible for this country. Everyone pretended like they were having church. We used to have, we had friends who would get dressed up. Like, we're going to get dressed up in our church clothes to sit on our couch and have church. You're not having church. And now that all that stuff's over with, they pretend like, oh, live stream isn't church. You used to pretend it was. Why are you doing Playing both sides. What I'm saying is, Christ deserves our full devotion, our full surrender. There should be something drawing us to worship and serve and love Christ. I'm speaking for those who never witnessed for Christ. Listen, some people can't make our outreach times as a church. That's fine. But do you witness for Christ at all? If you don't, something's wrong. I mean, in the Gospels, Jesus would heal people and forgive their sins. And he's like, shh, don't tell anybody. And they leave there, okay, he did it. They couldn't stop. And we're over here like, I just don't have the time. I'm too embarrassed. 
Maybe you're embarrassed because Christ hasn't done a work in here. And you're not truly saved and you have nothing to tell. Maybe that's the problem. Do you witness for Christ? I hope so. I hope so. I'm speaking to those who seldom think about spiritual things or meditate on Scripture. If your thoughts go very seldom to the Scriptures and spiritual things, are you truly saved? That should occupy your thoughts and your mind. If you only think about it on Sundays and Wednesday nights, there's a problem. I've been in churches where you get together. It was so refreshing. Last year I preached at Max's barbecue for the father-son thing. But to, to sit, we sat and we talked about spiritual things. I've been to men's barbecues where, I mean, if you brought up a spiritual thing, you were looked at like a weirdo. Yeah. Like, what's your problem? We're off the clock. Yeah. Let's talk about tools and guns and sports. And those things are fine, but they shouldn't occupy all of our thoughts. Christ should occupy our thoughts. Amen. If there's no new person inwardly, there's no new birth. If there's not desire for Christ, there's no salvation. The new covenant specifically says God will write his laws upon our hearts. If there's no inward obedience to the law of God, there's no true conversion. Nominal Christians don't exist. You understand me? Nominal Christians don't exist. There are saved and there are lost. There are weak Christians, but come on, weak Christians grow because the spirit of Christ is in them. How long does it go on for? Well, I know so-and-so is saved, but they've been a weak Christian for the last 10 years. Hold up. You're telling me the Holy Spirit of God is in them, and 10 years later they're still weak and frail? They're not saved. Christ should be enough. He's enough for his people. If you need all the other stuff, then the people who are coming must not be his people. Churches today are filled with half-hearted Christians. I should, let me rephrase that. Churches today are not filled with half-hearted Christians. They're filled with fully dead people. That's the problem. This everlasting consolation from Christ meant a great deal to the Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians. They were suffering as well. He says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. They had been suffering. And what did Paul say? He says, you're patient in your tribulation. Verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. This faith and patience was a token that their suffering was righteous. What will God do now to their persecutors? Verse 6, seeing this righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the consolations we get from Christ, by the way. He's going to punish our enemies. He's going to avenge his people. You understand that? He's always done that. We're studying uh, Nahum on Wednesday nights. Remember when the Assyrians ransacked Israel, took the northern kingdom hostage, took them prisoner? They never recovered, did they? Completely decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. What are we seeing in Nahum? God's vengeance upon his enemies. God's vengeance. God would later use Babylon to punish Judah, take them into captivity, destroy the temple. I was reading it. I, I, I don't want to get it wrong. I think it was Obadiah. I'm reading another minor prophet. Maybe it's Isaiah, major prophet. I don't know. I was reading in the Bible somewhere the prophecies against Babylon. And God says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring the Medes. And they're going to destroy you. They're going to pound you to the dirt. God always avenges his people. If you have never done it, a good book to read is The Wars of the Jews by Josephus. It can be a tough read. I recommend getting the audio book. Josephus, if you don't know who he was, he was a Jew, the first century And uh, the Romans kind of took a liking to him, and they spared his life and tasked him with recording as a live witness the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. He chronicles also the history of Jewish wars going back to the time of the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt. But when you get to that section, the end of his chronicles on the destruction of Jerusalem, and you read about what happened. You read about the blood that flowed through the streets. Mothers were cooking and eating their children. Josephus says, we don't know if they were dead or alive when they cooked them. Whole homes turned to cannibalism because they cut off the food supply for so long. All these great horrors that befell them. The burning of the temple, destroying, tearing one brick off another. And as you listen to it, as I listen to it, I heard something in the back of my mind. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king. His blood be on us and our children. Don't forget, the destruction of Jerusalem was a direct result of the killing of the Messiah. Jesus himself said that. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. God avenges his enemies. He avenges his people. He revenges his enemies. He avenges his people. We're going to suffer in this life, church. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face hard times. But one comfort we have from Christ is he's going to get justice one day. No sin goes unpunished and no attack on God's people will be unpunished. Remember in Revelation 6? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood from those who dwell on the earth? What did God say to them? Just rest a little while. It's coming. It's coming. 
as we talked about, the day of the Lord. The day when Christ returns. Final judgment. Everybody will stand before him. He will avenge his people. So Paul could tell the Philippians, you're suffering. You're going to be punished. Locked in prison. Executed. But those who are your enemies will pay. He's telling the Thessalonians, listen here. God sees it a righteous thing for you to punish those who give you tribulation. When Christ is revealed from heaven with flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God, is powerful imagery here. They persecute you with chains and whips. He's coming with a flaming sword to give to every man according to his works. We're promised that those who attack, who hate, and who persecute us will one day be judged and paid back by the God who identifies so closely with us that he says that any attack on us is an attack on him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Go back to Philippians chapter 2. I'm debating if I have time for the sermon now. But I think we're going to go ahead and do it. You guys have nowhere better to be. I know that. That was all introduction, by the way. So Paul starts with a question here. If there be consolation from Christ, we've seen that there is consolation from Christ. When we are suffering, he's with us. When we're persecuted, he's with us. What are these consolations? Well, he says here in verse 1, if any comfort of love. The love of God is a great consolation for the Christian. That's one of the ways we receive that. We are hated by the world. You ever been hated by somebody? Then loved by somebody? The contrast you feel there? I used to get bullied when I was a kid in school. Wasn't very popular, didn't have any friends. But I had one or two, and I found great consolation when I was with them. Because they liked me. They comforted me. There's comfort in their love, their friendship, as opposed to the kids who tried to beat me up all the time. There's comfort there. I'm safe with them. They like me. They want to be around me. Love brings great comfort. Go to John 16, 33. John 16, 33. A lot of turning to do in this point, so we'll get through kind of quickly here. Go through and read John 16 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's victorious over those who would bring tribulation to us. You understand that in the world we have tribulation. That's why the church is so important. We are out in this world who hates us and hates our Christ. We have a chance a few times a week to come into this place and to gather together around others who love our Lord. 
and to lock arms and to console one another. There's great consolation in the church. I used to love, I've always loved going to church, but I used to work in the hospital where there's a lot of suffering. It was a mental hospital. We had a lot of fights, a lot of anger. I had to wrestle people to the grounds, keep them hurting themselves or somebody else. A lot of hateful things are said towards me when I do that. I took great consolation in going to church, singing the hymns, hearing the preaching, being around Christians. It brought consolation. It brought comfort to me. It should bring comfort to us to be a part of God's body. Look at John 15, verse 18. 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. We will get nothing but hatred and persecution from this world. It hates our God. Where's the comfort in that? Where's the comfort in being in a world that hates you? Go to John 14, 23. John 14, 23. I think. I may have the wrong verse. Let me read that. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. Now this is the right one. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The comfort of the suffering of this world is the presence of Jesus Christ. He says, me and the Father, we're going to come. We're going to make our abode. We're going to abide with him. We're going to abide. Do you realize that God abides with you? You're not alone. Though you may stand alone physically, the Spirit is within you. He is God himself. God is always with us. Whatever we suffer... He suffers it right along with us. You understand that? He understands. When we are hated and persecuted by the world, it's a comfort or consolation to wrap ourselves into the love of God for us. That's what Father Tindum did. That's what Corey Tindum learned to do. Was to wrap yourself in the blanket of the love of God. It's cold outside that blanket, but we have that blanket to remind us that God loves us. If everybody else hates us, God loves us. If anybody else betrays us, God loves us. He's loyal. He's there. And he doesn't love us based on what we do. So even when we're bad, he doesn't stop loving us. He gently reproves us and draws us back into fellowship with him. Great comfort there. Go to 1 John 4.10. First John 4.10 Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us before we ever loved him. This means his love is given to us apart from us. Our sin cannot change it. Hatred from the world cannot change it. 
We have the consolation of Christ that regardless of what we go through, God is there with his love. Look at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. The token or evidence of God's everlasting love for us is the giving of the Son. Paul relates this same thought to the never-ending nature of God's love. God demonstrated his love, church. He demonstrated it. Go to Romans 8, verse 35. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, right? Nothing. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Why is Paul so strongly convinced the love of God cannot be separated from us? Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul is doing the same thing John is doing, showing that the demonstration of the offering of the Son of God is a consolation of the sinner that Christ will never leave him. That was an eternal offering. He gave himself for you. Himself. He held nothing back. Why would we hold back? Why would we sin against that? Why would, we, why would we betray that love? How can we not find peace and consolation in our trials when God spared not his own son? How can we doubt the love of God for us? Like John, Paul is saying the giving of the son it gives, it gives us confidence in the love of God. Go back to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. So one of the consolations that God gives us is his love. I'm going to say it again. It's like a blanket. Wrap yourselves in it, church. There's warmth and comfort in the love of God. I don't feel loved right now. Then look back to the cross. You were loved there with an everlasting love. So even in this moment, you don't feel it. You know that it's there. Right? You know that it's there. The second thing, the second consolation he gives us is fellowship of the Spirit. Our text says, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, if any fellowship of the Spirit. What a great truth. We have the fellowship of the Spirit of God. Now, you can only have fellowship with a person, can't you? You can't have fellowship with an impersonal force. So we know the Holy Spirit of God is a person. He's a divine person. He is as much God as the Father and the Son. The Trinity is a beautiful mystery that I confess I can't fully grasp, and yet I'm drawn to, the, to love the beauty of it. Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit can have fellowship with every member of the church, both in heaven and on earth. You understand that? 
Right now, the Holy Spirit of God has fellowship with Christians who are in heaven and with us at the same time. Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that beautiful? We share that with them right now. So what can we share with the dead, Pastor? Fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is a joint participation. We fellowship with him, he fellowship with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us, empowers us, baptizes us, communicates gifts and fruit to us, and he prays with us. He prays with us. Go back to John 14. John 14. Fourteen, sixteen. And Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Are you saying that Jesus is the Holy Spirit? No, no, they're separate persons. But the Holy Spirit is as much God as he shares in the divine nature. So by default, Christ does come to us in the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. We fellowship with Christ through the Spirit. You understand that? There's great comfort in that. They share one divine nature, so Christ comes to us in the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit is fellowship with Christ and with the Father. The Spirit makes much of Jesus. Go to John 16, verse 13. A couple pages over. 16, 13. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. If you're not finding comfort and consolation in Christ, Christian, Are you in Christ? The Spirit was given to make much of Christ. If the Spirit doesn't bring you comfort in Christ, there's a problem. And it's not with the Spirit. It's with us. Do you understand that? By the way, this whole idea of nominal Christianity. If the Spirit is in our hearts, it's drawing us to love Christ more. If that's not happening, are you really saved? Say, Pastor, that's uncomfortable. I know. It's uncomfortable for me to say it. But if you've been saved 20 years and you're still nominally involved in the church and you barely read your Bible or pray, are you really saved? The Holy Spirit came to make much of Christ. If we're not loving Christ more and more, we're not having the Holy Spirit within us because he doesn't fail to do his job. You can tell someone who enjoys the fellowship of the Spirit because they have an ever-growing love for Jesus. This fellowship of the Spirit is a great consolation because we have the Spirit always with us. Fellowship with Him will grow our love for Jesus. We often pray more, don't we? When we're sad, persecuted, down in our spirit. We pray more. Sometimes you think, am I praying right? Am I praying? I can't quite communicate my feelings like I should. 
In those moments, the Spirit is there praying for you. Praying for you. Words that you can't, you can't express to God what you want to say. Elizabeth Elliot said sometimes when she's praying, she's, she's I'm so overtaken in my grief over a certain thing. I don't know what to say anymore. I just sit there and I know the Spirit is communicating it for me. He prays with us and for us. Realizing the prayer meeting this morning, we weren't alone. The Spirit was here communicating those prayers to God. The last one is bowels and mercies. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Philippians, that's a consolation for we've received consolation from the love of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, and bowels and mercies. That term bowels means affections, and the term mercies means sympathy. The Bible uses the word bowels like we use heart, right? We don't mean the pumping muscle in our chest. We mean the seat of our affection. That's what he means. He's not meaning his inner guts. He's meaning the affection of Christ, the sympathy of Christ. That's a great consolation for a suffering Christian. You know that Christ not only knows your name, Christian, but he has affection for you. You ever, maybe you don't have, if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. You have affection for them. You want to make them happy. You like seeing smiles in their faces. You like them to have fun, have a good time. You have that. That's what Christ has for us. He looks at us. He doesn't look at us as just mere servants, mere subjects. Do what I say. That's a, a lot of churches take that approach with God, don't they? God's just this big CEO just waiting to crush the little guy that gets out of line. That's not the Christ of the Bible. He has affection for his people. He looks down and goes, oh, Art, I love him. I'm going to bless him. I like when he smiles. I like his songs of rejoicing. But you know what? God also knows that sometimes Art needs to sing songs of mourning. Sometimes he needs to cry a little bit. He needs to suffer, to learn, to grow. And in those times, Christ has sympathy for him and bears with him and gets him through it and carries him through to the next joy-filled prayer and song. That's why the Christian life is ups and downs. We have to have suffering mingled in with our joy. I think those times of joy, I picture it as Christ's affection for us. As his children, he wants us to smile, to rejoice. But knowing it's good for us to suffer some, there's that sympathy that comes along and bears us through it, carrying us through the time of suffering. A consolation from Christ is that we have his affection. Christ loves his people. No other God offers that in any religion. The God of Islam is so distant from his people. He wants them to lay down their lives for him. Our God laid down his life for us. The God of Catholicism is so... I mean, one minute you're in his favor, you got to do all this, you fall, you fall out of his favor, it's back and forth. If you die in a state of grace, you might get to heaven, but first you got to go through suffering to get all your sin off. The God of Mormonism. He's not even a God. He's a man that became a God. He's not eternal. He's not all-knowing. Do you understand the God of the Bible is unique and different than all other gods? He loves his people. When Jesus came down and walked among men, 
would have been so easy for the God man to look at the crowds and go, what idiots? Man, these people are dumb as rocks. And they were. But it says that he looked at the multitude and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And he raised Lazarus from the dead and they, they were unbelieving. Jesus could have been an angry God in that moment. Struck them all dead. Instead he wept over their unbelief. He's a compassionate God. In other words, God knows what you're going through and God cares what you're going through. We also have sympathy from Christ. He understands our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. He cares deeply. My tears, my anxieties, my struggles are deeply personal to Christ. He intercedes for me personally. This is the great overarching point of the consolations of Christ. That although we feel alone, often in our struggles in this world, we're not alone. The love of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, is there. Christ is pleading on our behalf to the Father. His love, his fellowship, his affections, his sympathy are with us. The Son intercedes for us. The Spirit prays for us. We're not alone. Let me make some quick application. We'll be done. How could this church in Philippi and our church and other churches fulfill Paul's joy? And he tells us in Philippians, by sharing the consolations we received from God with other people. That's what he says in verse 2. Fulfill you my joy. Be like-minded. As you have received from Christ, you give to others. The fellowship we've had with the Spirit, we share with others in the Spirit. We're all united by one Spirit. In that Spirit of God, we have unique and special fellowship that mere friendship can't compare to. Like the world has friendships. Listen, we don't have friendships in the church. We have a unique relationship in the Spirit of God that no unbeliever could ever understand. The affection that Christ has for you, you need to have for others. We should not be mere friends, but brothers and sisters. There should be a familial affection that is shared within this body of Christ. Sympathy. Christ sympathizes with us. We need to sympathize with others. Weep with them, rejoice with them, bear with them. If we do this, we will have one mind and be of one accord. As you receive from Christ, church, so give to others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the consolations in Christ. Whatever people are going through today, may they understand, may they embrace that you are with them. You are sympathizing with them. You love them with an everlasting and eternal love. Lord, we, we fail to understand. 
people who are going through hard times right now should find comfort in Christ. People who are struggling, perhaps you're not saved, but need to be saved. Oh, I pray you'd put that in their heart to be saved. If they're not growing in Christ, if there's no fruit in their life, Lord, may they question that. May they seek out true salvation and know you. We thank you for this time together, for the message, for the singing. We pray now you bless the offering. In Jesus' name, amen.